And so when we lost the coin flip for Hakeem Olajuwon, we, we, we called the wrong heads or tail, right? So we lost the coin flip, so we lose Hakeem. So now you go from not getting Hakeem, and now it's Sam Bowie or Jordan, and, and Michael Thompson and I went to the general manager's office, a guy named Stu Inman, and Stu Inman, we begged him to, to draft Jordan. Michael Thompson said in these exact words in 1984, he said, Stu, if you draft Jordan, him and Clyde going to dominate this league for the next 10, 15 years. Welcome to Greenlight Pod. I'm your host, Chris Long. Uh, got a really fun show for you today. That's because there were some sports of sorts on last night. I felt like the entire country was held captive, glued to their couches, watching um, The Last Dance, the ESPN docuseries on Michael Jordan. Uh, it's one of those things that I think seemed like it was a long time away. Obviously, it was moved up, uh, and we've been waiting and waiting. And here we are. And uh, it did not disappoint. You know, the footage is all new. It's, it's, it's footage that's been in a vault for, you know, years and years. Um, and the background of this, um, this documentary was that during that, that final season, um, actually, the last dance was a uh, Phil Jackson moniker for the season that he put on those pamphlets, which looked um, hilariously low budget. But it was 1997, 1998, so, I mean, go figure. He was probably running somebody to Kinko's to print that out. Oh, I'm sure they had a big printer in the Bulls facility, but you get the idea. It just didn't look uh, becoming of a dynastic NBA basketball team with the GOAT um, and Scottie Pippen and and all those guys. Uh, You know, it was black and white ink. It looked very primitive, but... Maybe that was Phil's style, uh, and so he called that season the last dance. Um, and it was unique because everybody knew it was. I can't think of too many other situations where, uh, you know, that that different where you've got a team that's won five championships um, in the last seven, eight years, um, and you're in the midst of a second run at a three-peat. And, you know, your coach is going to be stepping aside at the end of the year. Um, and they're probably going to break the whole thing up. And Jordan has maintained that he's he's not going to play for anybody but Phil. Um, and uh, I just it, – it's, it's bizarre when you look at it through that lens. I mean, as a kid, you're watching as a 12-, 13-year-old kid, if you were lucky enough to grow up in the era where you could – digest what was going on on the court you at least saw what was what was happening but kids don't 12 13 year old kids they don't you know even now I don't think they're they're hip to what's going on behind the scenes or reading quotes um you know immersing themselves in the organizational back and forth um that we got to see last night I mean I'm sure adult sports fans knew all about it but I didn't even know the extent of some of the dysfunction there um, that that swirled around Krause and Jackson and Jordan and those guys and Scotty's contract, which I think some, you know, even adults uh, at the time 
uh, when it's put back into perspective or shocked at how little money um, Scottie Pippen was making. Um, and we'll get to Scotty in a bit, but because he was one of the biggest revelations of a documentary about Michael Jordan on the first night and made me think they could probably, they could probably write a script for a, um, a Scotty Pippen movie. I mean, his, his story is that interesting from, you know, manager, um, the, the five inch growth spurt, you know, all the, the hardship he's had to deal with in his life, uh, having two people in his own home, a part of his family confined to wheelchairs as a result of a stroke and an accident, uh, one in his brother, one in his dad. Um, and then, you know, his rise to stardom and his being overshadowed by Jordan, which I'm sure that he would, wouldn't change a thing going back in time, uh, as far as where he ended up playing basketball. I know he loved his time in Chicago. You saw how emotional he got, uh, before they hung the banner in 97, 98. But, um, I don't know, man, it, you, you wonder in an alternate universe, what Scottie Pippen's legacy would be on another franchise. And I think they hit that pretty nicely last night. Um, you know, I, I tweeted this, that he was, he has as good a case as any athlete to actually be resentful. Athletes are wired differently. We feel spited very easily. We're competitive. We don't like being disrespected. And Scotty had a case and probably has a case sitting there now as, as um, you know, a 55, 60-year-old dude. I don't know how old Scotty is. Maybe he's a little bit younger than that. But that he could probably be mad at the world. Um, you know, the, the card that he drew with some of the issues in his family. Um, and then the fact that he was so great. I mean, those the, his highlight reel is disgusting. You never watch Scottie Pippen highlights if you're a casual NBA fan. But I was hoping they'd put a lot of his stuff on because some of the dunks he had, you know, the Patrick Ewing one is, is an iconic one. But, I mean, there's a, there's a lengthy highlight reel that uh, you could put toe-to-toe with a lot of the stars of his generation that were more thought of as as front men. Um, you know, he happened to be the number two, but he happened to be the number two be- behind possibly and probably the greatest uh, basketball player of all time. Uh, certainly at that time, they, they highlighted it. They, the, the attention that Jordan got rightfully so, was unparalleled in sports history. I mean, outside of, I mean, Wilbon, I think, likened it to maybe Babe Ruth and and uh, who else, Muhammad Ali. But you get the idea. Scottie Pippen drew that card. Now, he, he, he had a number of championships out of that. He's a Hall of Famer. He eventually made $100 million plus in the league. But wouldn't you love to have your stardom and your championships and your money all at the same time. All things considered, Scotty's had a really blessed life, but um, he has to at some point look back and resent the way that I think a lot of younger fans probably think of him, which is as uh, Robin proper to Jordan's Batman. Pippen could have been Batman a number of places. And, um, you know, he, he's, he's probably re- regularly annoyed by that misnomer um you know but the entire journey for him was very interesting and uh you know even to even into that point where he'd kind of had enough in in 98 uh where he elected to get surgery so that his summer didn't get fucked up 
which was a shockingly open admission from a player. And I know that players have made decisions like that selfishly before, but this had a tinge of uh, retribution, um, kind of showing Kraus in the front office. I mean, I've heard of players plenty of times not handling rehab and surgery and timing you know, correctly, but very rarely is it spoken on publicly, especially by a player of that caliber uh, in a situation where his uh, actions were so um, consequential, not just to the Bulls, but to the landscape of the NBA. I mean, this is a team that's trying to solidify itself as the best of all time. And it's probably, it's probably getting there, but a six championship you know, puts you in very rare, rare um, company. And uh, two three-peats, unparalleled. Um, so that was interesting. It was also interesting to hear Phil say that he wasn't annoyed with him. And then, the, you know, seeing Jordan calling him selfish and kind of in, in an interview back back in the day saying he has nothing to say about that. And, you know, he said a lot with, with a few words there. Um that kind of puts Jordan in an interesting lens as far as like a pro player guy. Like nowadays, it'd be interesting to see with some of these labor negotiations and that sort of thing, like where Jordan would fall. Um, but also as a teammate, I understand, like you could look at it on one end and say, hey, Scottie Pippen signed that deal. Um, that's the way things go. Um, you know, and getting surgery and weaponizing his rehab you know, I get the idea, I get the motivation, but you're also involving a lot of other players in the Bulls, who, by the way, are all making way more money, not just Jordan, a bunch of role players are making more money than Pippen, who's been a centerpiece. I think he was making the 122nd most money of anybody in the league at the time. And it was funny when Scott Van Pelt had his Midnight Sports Center after, um, after the show wrapped, they were like, for perspective, the 122nd highest paid player in the league right now is blank. I don't remember, um, but it sucks to be that guy to be held in comparison to Scottie Pippen to illustrate um, how fucked up that was. It was also funny um, as I dropped maybe my first F-bomb of the show to hear Scottie say, fuck. <laughs> that was funny to me. It was Funny to to hear Jordan and Scotty and a number of people say fuck on ESPN. I, I I had to I had to check twice to see if I was watching HBO or Netflix or something. But really glad they highlighted Scotty again. They could do an entire thing on Scotty. I mean, I'm ten minutes in. I've talked mostly about Scotty, not to let Scotty hijack this whole thing, but he was awesome. Um, and he seems like a guy who carries himself pretty well. Now I know. People tweeted at me when I said Scotty had a really good case to be resentful that he doesn't tip. Okay, there's a flaw. Definitely not cool with him not tipping, but I'm pretty sure fans um, who think less of Scotty, you know, on account of his frugality, um, have some players in their in their fandom that have done much worse. Uh, it'd be interesting to examine that, but you know, I. Um, one thing I wanted to see and I was really interested in um, here is is kind of how open this footage was going to be. And so far, it's pretty it's pretty good. I, I have a feeling we haven't scratched the surface. Again, you know, the way this thing went down was uh, this stuff's been held. And Jordan, before they taped this, uh, NBA Entertainment, when they taped this in 97, 98, 
they um, they were like, hey, you have complete control over this. Um, and, you know, you have like final say on what goes out and what doesn't. Um, and it was pitched as almost like, hey, and if you don't run with it, uh, it's like uh, it'll be like the best highlight tape ever to show your kids like, uh, you know, home videos. Um, and it's sat and it's sat and it's sat in like a vault. Um at the, I believe it was the NBA headquarters and it had its own room and I think Jordan had access to it um, and it was very protected. Um, and that makes sense because Jordan has such a guarded persona. His his agent talked about, I think I was doing some reading on it and just the whole mindset was like every time Jordan's likeness and brand is used and this is a basic concept um, that some people subscribe to is it's almost like inflation. I mean, it's just the value goes down every time. And so that was kind of the way Jordan was. And I, I get a feeling that it wasn't only because of his business acumen, but also because of, you know, the way he was being kind of guarded, more private. Um, he did seem, as you peel back, you know, the curtains here, like a guy who was a bit simpler in his tastes and a bit simpler in his his interest and those were basketball and family and and uh and working at his craft i mean the stories in 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 the beginning about when he got in the league and burst in on that hotel room or was invited into the hotel room and then you know you know turned away and said uh, i'm not interested in that I, I i don't need to get in trouble that sort of thing I wonder how true that was with regularity, but the fact that Jordan, at least back then, didn't drink, didn't party, I mean, this wasn't really his thing. He was there to win basketball games. And, you know, I, I'd even read that, you know, he turned down 50, 50 million in endorsements in one sitting with his business partners at one time. And this was like on the tail end of his career. So that just goes to show you how selective he was. And I wonder as I'm sitting here watching this, what Jordan, and this is is a well-beaten path in discussing this, but what Jordan, who Jordan would be today in 24-hour news cycle in a time where, um, you know, players are leveraging their platforms to do a million different things. You look at LeBron, he's got a production house, he's got a, a media network, he's, he's blogging his Instagram stories, he's not guarded. I mean, you get a lot of LeBron, and now... Um, that access is is doing the opposite of you know inflation for the right guy. It's it's adding value. You know now people want to know who you are. So it's ironic that that Jordan guarded his brand so heavily and was so closed off, and that allowed in a weird way, uh, you know, twenty years later for players to grow their their brands and make a ton of money and and have a huge footprint by doing almost the opposite. Um, you know, I, I wonder what he'd be like. I, I don't think he'd be LeBron. And I'm not saying there's a good or a bad way to do it. He just seemed more guarded. He seemed more protective. He seemed a little bit simpler, again, in his tastes and in, in what he was into. Um, now, it's impossible to predict. Um, but, you know, even this footage, you know, he has final say on it. So if there's anything in there that's going to blow your mind... Um, I know he teased and said, if you watch this thing, you're going to think I'm a dickhead. Okay, well, we already knew you were a dickhead. But if there's anything in here that's going to damage his reputation or is questionable, I mean, they've they've gone through this with a fine, fine-tooth comb here. Um, he has control. So it has the appearance of opening the floodgates on what was in the vault. But I wonder what was really in the vault. I mean, what did he say? Yeah, that's not going to fly. That's what I'm really curious about. 
Um, and, you know, the, the background of this documentary is it sat and sat and sat. And then in 2016, uh, when the OJ thing came out, Making a Murder, um, the guys that did this, did this documentary said, okay, documentaries now are moving to more long form. We can get away with doing a series. Um, and that changed the way that you thought about, hey, we could do, um, we could do something with this. And uh, it would have been impossible to do in one 90-minute documentary, which seemed to be the benchmark, um, you know, 10 years ago. So it makes sense that now um, it finally became possible in the last five years or so. Another interesting thing that I read about was, you know, Jordan's avoidance of any sense of finality in his life. Like, you know, it was almost like MJ could not imagine getting older and not being an uber-competitive goat. I mean... Um, whether it's baseball, whether it's the front office thing, there's always a, a frontier that he, 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 he wants to conquer. And one of the most surprising things about this documentary is just the name is The Last Dance. Okay, well, he took it from the Phil Jackson thing, but there is a sense of finality here. And I don't know what transpired in Jordan's life or what made him suddenly warm to the idea of, you know, closing a chapter, but... This is what it feels like. And I'm really glad it's going on. I mean, I didn't grow up a Bulls fan. I grew up a Knicks fan. He tormented my favorite team. But he's somebody that, um, as a basketball fan, you just can't help but um, but be drawn to. Um, whatever you think, whether he's the greatest of all time or not. And by the way, I think it's absolutely fucking pointless to do this debate this week. We do it on first take 300 days a year. Why are we doing it right now? Just sit back and enjoy the documentary and stop um, comparing players across generations as if we haven't been doing this for, for the better part of 10 years with LeBron and before that with Kobe. Yeah, so I was on Devin McCourty's pod and he was like, give me one word. We were playing a word association game. Um, also, it was Jason McCourty's pod. I just happened to know Dev better. So shout out to the twins. Um, like... They were playing an association game. They said Michael Jordan. I said isolation. That's the only thing that I could think of with him. I mean, yeah, obviously competitive, obviously driven, obviously would do anything to win. Okay, we all know that. But I think the lead, burying the lead here, it has to be incredibly lonely at times to be Michael Jordan. Um, I certainly don't feel bad for him. But to have that level of competitiveness and skill – and greatness, no one understands you. Even at the conclusion of this documentary, I think we'll all feel like we, get, we, we know him better, but we don't, um, and we can't relate. Uh, I, I think, I'm not gonna say there was nobody more competitive than him as a former athlete. Like you always, you always wanna think that you're the most competitive guy in the league, you'll do anything to win. Michael Jordan's the gold standard. Um, and you get that sense that and this is what I like about him. What you see is what you get. He kind of was just unapologetically an asshole out to win. And he was going to bring out the best in his teammates through a really uncomfortable process. You know, not every leader I played with was an asshole, and that's okay. Um, but it's also really hard to do the asshole thing because you have to be perfect. I could never do the asshole thing, you know, on teams that I was a leader on. And, of course, I hate even, like, following up a Michael Jordan comment and and discussing my career, but as an athlete, like getting into his psyche, it's it's impossible to imagine because to be a, an asshole consistently 
to your teammates in a way that's going to get the best out of them, you have to be damn near perfect. And that's why I don't think it's him being an asshole that's rare. I think what's rare is that somebody is that great and also that asshole kind of leader. Because anybody who's who's one of the best in the world at what they do at any time could do that if they so choose, could be that person if they so choose. But Mike had both. He had the ability and that hard edge where he was going to be brutally honest with guys and probably, um, you know, at times drove some people away. Uh, but I think his mindset it seemed like was if you can't handle my chirping at you and my criticism, like how am I going to count on you in a situation that's much more pressure packed than me calling you soft or, you know, questioning your work ethic or uh, calling you a dumbass when you make a bad play. I mean, leaders in sports sprinkle those, those comments in when, when appropriate, but for that to be his brand as a leader, um, and I could be wrong. Maybe there's a lot I'm not seeing, but it's pretty interesting. Um, but I also liked, I liked the fact he was kind of honest with the media, it seemed like. You know, I'm not playing anywhere else. He's ripping Kraus level-headedly. You know, the Cubs comment, they said they've been rebuilding for 43 years. That was laugh-out-loud funny and also would have been a big fucking deal nowadays, uh, which also goes to show you uh, the difference in the way the media was back then and now. Um, also... You know, his 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 attitude when it came to being risk adverse, which obviously he's not. And I'm not being funny. I mean, there's the gambling thing. But last night they're they're talking about, well, uh, I told Jordan if he played, there's a 10 percent chance he hurts his foot again. This is in his second year when he broke his his hoof because he's a goat. His hoof. He fell on his hoof um, that. You know, if he if he hurts himself or if he goes out there, there's ten percent chance he his career is over. And Jordan's Jordan's still pushing to play. And somebody commented on him not being very risk adverse. Um, well, that's pretty obvious to me from everything I know about Michael Jordan. You think um, that's how crazy he was? Um, imagine him going out there. And he was back home at UNC playing, which was another thing that was interesting is like, can you imagine an NBA team right now um, with their most precious capital and not knowing what he's doing, that he's playing basketball for an hour and a half a day during a rehab uh, sequence where he's not supposed to be doing anything of the sort. The guy was just a psychopath and then came back, by the way, and um, and dropped like 40, I think, on on uh, on the Knicks in his like fourth game back, they go to the playoffs. Obviously they fall short, but he was spectacular at times. Um, you know, and, and so the personality part of it was interesting. Also, I think one thing this documentary does is it serves to remind people that depending on where you were born, when you were born, you might not know the, the entire Michael story. Um, there's two Michaels. If you are, you know, 35 years old like me, you're going to know in real time kind of what was happening in the early 90s. If you divide it between two, three Pete's, you know, I was a six, seven, eight year old kid when he was doing his his first three Pete. I don't have the same sense of remembrance when it comes to that. Even if I watch it back, I didn't live it as a sports fan. Now, you know, Bulls, you know, second 
three-peat with, um, you know, where they, they beat the, the Jazz and the Sonics and, and that sort of thing. That was something I remember more vividly. I'll always remember where I was when he hit that shot. And I'll always remember, you know, where I was when he played the Sonics. Actually, I, my dad's buddy, Frank Burkowski, was on that team and got into it with Dennis Rodman. I was watching very intently. Uh, and I'll always remember the Gatorade bottles with the caps, where if you got Bulls and Six, you knew um, you were going to win a free towel and uh, some free, like a Gatorade hat, which was the the smallest deal in the world, but our little league team, we used to fight like dogs over the Jordan and six. A guy stole my Jordan and six, um, six bottle cap. I'll never forget. If I see him today, 20 years later, I don't give a fuck. I still think less of you. You took my bulls and six Gatorade cap, um, that you mailed in and got a free Gatorade towel off of. It was a big deal that I remember what it was like, but I wasn't as plugged in during the first three Pete and certainly not in the 80s, um, and there was an entirely different Jordan. You know, gold chain Jordan was different than, you know, the older Jordan who's a decade plus in the league. His game seemed different. Um, The persona seemed different. You know, he's definitely hardened. Um, When you look back at footage of him in that Celtics series when he dropped 62, you know, and the highlights surrounding that era, it, he looked as much like, you know, he had the explosiveness and the frenetic pacing of a Westbrook, you know, more so than than a Kobe, which I think Kobe looked more like him the second go round. Um, and, you know, I was reading an article about some of the background here and I, he claims he ran a 4-3 at UNC. That's how great an athlete he was. He also claims he wished he was a receiver because uh, he said he had great hands and could probably play in the NFL, I think I think he said. But if he really ran a 4-3 at UNC, I mean, this guy's 6'5", running a 4-3, jump out of the gym. Um, he was a pure athlete. And, you know, if you only grew up, you know, you know his name is his Aaronis. I'm not pulling a Darius Slay here. Shout out to the newest uh, Eagle star. He tweeted uh, his synopsis of the documentary last night was, damn, bro, uh... Michael Jordan has hops or something to that effect. I'm like, Jesus, his name's his hairness, bro. Um, I, I didn't have any revelations like that. But as you go back and, I, you know, leading up to this, I did I did go back and YouTube some old old footage and, and kind of watch some older games from the 80s. And there was an entire chapter of MJ that we, even as 35-year-olds, didn't live. Um, and imagine if you're a millennial. So there's definitely a reason for this documentary to come out and put things into perspective. And I'm not even talking about a debate over who's the GOAT. I'm just talking about fully understanding not just Michael the person, and that's what we're as 80s babies are hoping to glean because of his protective nature when it came to the brand, but also um, Michael the player in the 80s, early 90s, and also how difficult it was in the 80s as well. Um so, I mean, two three-peats, amazing. Uh, imagine the landscape prior to that. I mean, that was another thing um, that I'll hopefully ask Clyde about. I was like, dude, you, you've got the Lakers, you've got the Celtics, you had the Sixers, you had the Blazers, and then you had the Pistons. And you couldn't get over the hump there um, until like the third time you played them. 
And I saw somebody comment last night, and I'm looking forward to the Pistons uh, series next week, uh, where he said Michael didn't even lift weights till he played the Pistons. The Pistons created a monster. Um, and also you think about what was the perception of Michael? Who would Michael have been nowadays going on like eight years, uh, six, seven, eight years without a championship, uh, but undoubtedly one of the best, if not the best talents in the NBA. Um, and, you know, his first couple of years making the playoffs on a 30-win team. It's insane. I mean, that's that's how bad the Bulls were. And that's another thing when you lay the uh, lay the groundwork for this whole thing is, the Bulls were not just always the, the 90s Bulls. Um, the Bulls got outsold by the uh, Chicago Sting. It was an indoor soccer league, they pointed out last night. I mean, they, they won 30 games his second year and made the playoffs. I think they were sub-500 his first year as well and made the playoffs. So it was a slow process. And I also wonder with Jordan, you know, what if the front office didn't make moves for Pippen um, and, and Grant? Um would Jordan have been a a mover, um, you know, in today's game? I know it's easy to sit back and say when free agency was less of a thing. Yeah, that's just not the way we do things. We don't form super teams. But if in the 80s you're looking around and there's a few organic super teams out there um, and you're not on one and the Bulls don't make a move for these guys – we might look at Jordan as being one of the biggest wasted talents uh, in NBA history, if not the the most uh, wasted talent. So uh, a lot of what ifs and, you know, the 80s are interesting to me um, because if you were a fan in the 80s, I, I, I don't know. I didn't live it. Like, what did you think of Jordan in 1990? What was his rep? Um, did people know what was about to happen or did they have any, any inkling of what was about to happen? And I think the answer to that has to be no, you couldn't know um, that he was going to go on to to uh, engineer one of the greatest runs in sports history. Yeah, I mean, I also wonder what kind of music he was listening to. I was a little disc man. I was just like trying to put myself in in that Bulls locker room. Uh, you know, what, what compact disc was this guy? I know he listened to Anita Baker, but I tweeted last night. I was wondering... You know, what Jordan, down to what Jordan. Like, nowadays, you have access to players. They post playlists online. But Jordan literally probably had a fucking CD case like we used to have in high school with the sleeves and everything and travel with that bulky son of a bitch and rotated between Anita Baker and whatever else. Uh, Jay Donde tweeted at me and said that uh, it's rumored that he was on the D'Angelo um, back then, which is great. Um you know, he he wasn't a rap fan. Uh, I think there was a, a moment where somebody uh, mentioned something about Rakim, and he didn't know who Rakim was, and somebody had to explain he's not a hip-hop fan. Um, so very interesting, very interesting juxtaposition when it comes to current-day basketball, the access and the lack of access back then with uh, – with Jordan, some some hidden stars here. Um, Bill Walton, my man, uh, hated to see my boy dejected uh, because he had to guard MJ game two. And they showed him on the bench just looking like he'd had it. Uh, I know he'd been in the league a while at this point. But guarding his airness uh, in a game, at least for a portion of it, where Jordan dropped 63, had to just be like, what the fuck do they have me doing? I thought that was funny to see Bill uh, in a bit of a cameo. Also, young Bob Costas had a little drop in. 
I also want to shout out the very curious uh, sign in Paris at the arena uh, where Michael Jordan is referred to as the Black Panther. I had to Google if that was a, um, a nickname of any sort. I know me and Rosillo or Rosillo likes to uh, go through uh, funny NBA nicknames that actually nobody ever refers to the corresponding NBA stars as. Um, that would be one that I don't even think makes that cut. It was very European of those folks um, to kind of just throw together a nickname last minute for Michael Jordan and put it on a poster board sign upon his arrival uh, to Paris. Also, I know Michael is a family man, a married man, but I'm pretty sure um, if he wasn't, he could have had a lot of fun in that city. Um, I mean... Look at just the the footage as he's walking into the hotels, uh, as he's you know doing press stuff there. It, it's so it's a throwaway for a star today, but it was surreal seeing it and his global stardom uh, in real footage that you'd never seen before. Uh, you know, I guess the closest comp would be LeBron traveling internationally. Uh, this was just crazy to, to see how big he was in Europe. And, uh, I'm sure Paris was a good time for the Bulls. Um, also I want to shout out the guy who got LeBron's wristband. I wonder how that French cat, presumably French, I don't know. I know he's a French team. I I wonder how he's storing that bad boy. Like what kind of a shadow box you put a formerly sweaty, Michael Jordan wristband in. Uh, and also, did he catch himself on the show? Was he watching last night? Um, so I guess one of the random parts that blew my mind the most was the golfing thing. Okay, for 20 years we've heard, hey, guys now are soft, they're friends, that's unforgivable in the 80s and 90s, no baby is allowed, this was a tough guy era. Man, two of the now um, benchmark type gritty franchises in big, tough cities, Boston, Chicago, two of their biggest stars in the 80s when people were getting cold cocked for going to the, like, fucking trying to shoot a layup. These guys were golfing before game two. And, of course, MJ told Danny to tell uh, tell his boys they had something for him, but... But still, it, like, I know everybody was sitting on the couch last night universally looking around like, what? Huh? Like, they were playing golf before a playoff game? I mean, I don't care. I Listen, to each his own. I'm not one of these hardliners that's like, you can't talk to your friends. You can't see your buddies at, at the 50-yard line. I love coaches that are like, we're not going to be fucking friends with people today. Like, if I catch you out there talking to a, a player on the other team, I'll know where your head's at. Like, motherfucker, you don't have to hit anybody. I have to go run into these people. I'll talk to them as I see fit. And in the 80s, uh, these were fierce rivalries. Not that the Bulls and the the Seas were a rivalry at that point. I don't know how people thought about it. But um, crazy that they were playing golf together, especially with the way uh, – with the narrative that looks a little funny in the light now. Was Jordan actually a closet nice guy? Uh, hmm, interesting. I will ask Clyde about it. So without further ado, we'll get Clyde on the line. 
We got Clyde Drexler on the line welcoming uh, an NBA legend to the Green Light Pod. This is one of the biggest guests we've had. Hall of Famer, NBA champion, big three commissioner, 10-time All-Star, Dream Team, all that. I could talk all day about the bio. Clyde, how are we doing, man? We're doing good, Chris. How's everything? Delighted to be on your show. Well, I appreciate it. Uh, you know, everything's good. You know, I, we all miss sports, I know, and, and, and you're uh, – I'm sure you're the same way, but this is the least we can do is, is kind of put things on pause for a few months. And I know you got a, a job to do now as, a, as the commissioner of the big three. Uh, and, and I know there's some hope that maybe we see we see some of that by summer's end. What's what's the update on that? Well, Chris, as we all know, people are losing their lives. This virus is very uh, contagious. And so you want to be safe when it comes to public health and putting on events. And so we're all trying to remain diligent and just see what the data says from science and, 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 and what the curve is going to be of this virus. But with that being said, obviously, the economy is taking a hit. Uh, people are losing their jobs. They're losing loved ones. So this is, this is a tough time in our history, right? The big three, Chris, uh, the big three is uh, incredible. Ice Cube, Jeff Quantinitz, the co-founders, those guys work hard. We're, we're looking forward. We don't start until the end of June. And hopefully uh, the economy will be somewhat back by then. But we're just taking it day by day. We're going to do what we can and what we can't do. We, you know, we're just going to stay diligent and uh, abide by the rules. Well, I think, I think um, it's great to hear. And it's no surprise to me. You guys are kind of understandably taking a backseat to this thing. And you're not going to force anything. But, um, you know, at the same time, realizing that you know, sports can be a major morale boost. I remember, you know, I'm sure you, you remember better than me because I was a kid. I was in high school when 9-11 happened. And just the the role that a community feel played in getting back on the field, getting fans to rally behind their teams, to, to bond over something. So I think that whenever it happens, it, it'll, be a, it, it'll be a sight for sore eyes, but we got to do it sequentially in the right way. So that so, so this big brother, big three concept that I was extremely excited about is out, or is that is that in? This was the reality. No, no. TV that's type. still that's still something that we're working on, and hopefully, uh, the the co-founders will get something done. I would end them all uh, in, in in the near future. And once it's done, obviously, we'll put it out for everyone to to, to hear about it. But uh, that's something that's a reality, and we're hoping that we're able to do it because. You know, we need sports, but not at the expense of anyone's life. And so we exactly. want to do it uh, safely. We want to do it within the confines of what can be done. And we want to make sure that everyone is safe and okay with whatever we do. Well, it's an amazing concept, uh, the little bit I read about it, that, you know, dudes would be quarantining together. From what I read, and correct me if I'm wrong, in Vegas, and they'd be kind of hanging out, and you get to know the players even better than you do now. Uh, and 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 the preparation for the big three season. Who was supposed to be on that thing? Can you share it all? Anybody special that would be on that <laughs> thing that we don't know about? Well, we would. You know, we were hoping that some of our best players would be on it, which is you know guys like Joe Johnson, yeah. Amari Stoudemire, Nate Robinson, guys like Katino Mobley, uh, Stephen Jackson. I mean, we got a lot of great players in the big three that are phenomenal players, and a, a lot of good young players as well. So. It's not an old man's league. It's guys who can still play. Why? Because it's three on three and it's only half court and they play once a week. So they can really still play. 
That's the reason our product is so good, Chris. This is a great concept because people will get to know more about the big three, the inner workings, and see how hard, just how hard these guys play and how much it means to them to win. So if you, so if you had to be quarantined with uh, three former teammates, who, who are you picking? Who could you actually put up with on a day-to-day basis for a month? <laughs> you know, it, it, it depends on where you are in life. Let me, let me just give you a story. The 92 Dream Team, the original Dream Team, Chris. Uh, I was next door to Larry uh, Legend, Larry Bird. And, you know, I didn't know Larry that well, obviously. I'm in my ninth year in the league. And, uh, but I, and Larry was in the East, and I was in the West. We played each other twice a year. So you really don't get to know the guys in the East, right? And then, you know, guys like Patrick Ewan, Scotty, Michael, they're all in the East. Uh, but the guys on the West Coast, you play in the All-Star games with them. So you're in the locker room. You get to know them over a period of time. Guys like Carl Malone, David Robinson, Magic. You know, you get Stockton. You get to know those guys. But uh, for the most it was always difficult because, uh, you know, some of, most of us had kids. Our wives were there. And so I wouldn't want to... At that stage in my life, I wouldn't want to be quarantined. Now, if I'm 21 or 24 and I'm single with no kids, it might be fun if, if, if it's entertaining and very competitive. But at the latter stage of your careers, you just want to go home and relax. <laughs> yeah, I hear you. No, I, I hear you. I always tell people this. People are always like, hey, what's it like in the NFL after a game? You know, what kind of crazy parties do you get into, whatnot? I'm like, dude, you don't understand. Most people in the NFL, unless you're 21, 22, kind of like you're talking about, I am crawling into an ice bath Sunday night, and I'm trying to eat as much as I can and sleep as much as I can, and that's about all I'm doing because I just want to spend time with my family and recover. But having said that, the 21-year-old Clyde, if you had to pick somebody off your team to, to quarantine with that people might think of as a rival, who did you secretly actually not mind? I know you didn't know the, East, the, the Eastern Conference guys as much. You mentioned that coming to the dream team, but was there a, a friendship that you had in the Western conference? Maybe that people might not know about. Oh no. I mean, all the guys are very friendly. You know, it's always yeah. about competition, Chris. Now here, here's what I will tell you. Like in the eighties and, 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 and early nineties, guys didn't like guys from other teams that had a different uniform. Not personally. We definitely respected each other, but there was a genuine dislike because we wanted to beat you. Yeah. <laughs> and and yeah. so, that you know, that's it's not that way anymore. Let me just tell you, these guys go yeah. out to dinner with each other. I mean, they hang out all the time. They're hugging and kissing before games. <laughs> <laughs> like I went to college with Hakeem Olajuwon, five slam jamma, right? That was our game. Yeah. And so he was a college friend. And let me tell you something. In the game, we were like arch enemies. But after the game, we went out to dinner every time, but because right. only because we were in college together for three years. But right. but if he had, you know, if that had not been the case, you know, you, you're not going to be that friendly with guys on the other team. I played my brother uh, in, in the pros a few times, so it was pretty it's pretty odd. Um, it's always odd trying to compete with somebody that, you know, you love off the court. Uh, but you mentioned now, the hold dream on, hold team. On, Chris, Chris, how was yeah. that? I, you know, I watch you. I, I, I met Chris when you were 15, 16, 17. How old were you, Chris? Uh, I had to be maybe even 14, 13, 14 when I first met you. 14. And, and, and to watch your career and see you develop has been a thing of beauty. Your dad, Howie, and your mom are just awesome people. And so I rooted for you day and night, and you had an incredible career. So proud of Thanks, what you were able to accomplish. 
Thanks. You know, it was, uh, you know, I, I was going back through your career and um, you can identify. I mean, you, you guys, the Blazers had a lot of success and you guys were close a lot. But to get that championship towards the end for you, that just for me to win a Super Bowl or two Super Bowls at the end, it just validated all the tough times. And of course, our times were tougher and I wasn't the player you were. But, you know, to see you get that championship with the Rockets in your hometown, that had to be pretty cool. And, and for me, at least that long ride, it made all the ups and downs worth it. Now, playing my brother, uh, it was tough because the first time I played my brother, we had 40, 50 people in town for the game, as you can imagine, in St. Louis. And the defense I, <laughs> the defense I played on in St. Louis was um, an edgy defense. Let's just say that. We like to uh, stir the pot and, uh, and, and, and instigate a little bit. And one of my best friends, is, his name is William Hayes. And he was, a, he was a motherfucker to, to deal with and play against. He was going to test you. And he was actually the other left end on my side. So he would come in and rotate. And a, a year ago, kind of like what you said, our D-line went to Vegas. We took my brother Kyle when he was still in college. We went and did the pool parties. We did the whole nine yards. Had a great time. Now, <laughs> we, we come to play each other on Sunday, and Kyle loses his cool in the second quarter. When I tell you he dragged my best friend 20 yards like a rag doll and started pummeling him, I'm telling you, it was, William Hayes was, was, was hopeless. I had to run. I ran off the sideline to pull my brother off, my best friend, in a fight. And Kyle, by the grace of God, didn't get ejected. But at the end of the game, I had to go to dinner with all those people. And it was like a funeral. Uh, so it's really <laughs> tough playing against your brother. And it's even tougher when your brother gets in a fight with your best friend in the middle of a game. So I can definitely identify with that. But last night I'm watching. Okay. I don't, did you watch last night? You know what? I, I, I watched some of it. I'm going to watch it today. Uh, guys, I had something to do last night. I was on a conference, but I want to watch it in its entirety today. The Bulls, they were a great team. They were great. I mean, Michael was better than you think he was. He was phenomenal. Right. And he was even right. better than you. I mean, you know, he's good, but when you play against him, you find out he's even better than that. <laughs> but the spoiler for me, and, and I, I don't want to spoil the, the episode for you. One thing that, that stood out for me was before the series where Mike went for 62 in game two and they lost the Celtics, okay, which for somebody uh -huh. my age, you know, I wasn't watching in real time, but we all know about that, that series and kind of that, that transitional period with the, with the powers in the NBA. I know kind of what you echoed, which is that players didn't always they, – they respect each other, but they didn't want to hang out. But last night they showed Danny Ainge and Mike playing golf before game two. They went out and played golf before game two. And, of course, Mike said to, to Danny, and tell your boys I got something for him in game two. But how rare was that? Because I'm sitting there thinking all I've heard is about how cutthroat it was in, 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 the, in the NBA in the 80s, and certainly the, the, the game was more physical – but dudes were, were were a lot of guys golfing, or was Mike maybe not as 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 standoffish off the court with his opponents as we thought? No, no, Mike is gonna golf, and, he, and and hold up, if you're another guy on another team who golfs, you're probably gonna end up at the same place, the nice right. club in that city, right? So he probably right. saw Danny, and then obviously it becomes a competition. All right, what are we gonna do on the golf course? So you want to play with him, but they be, they were probably friends. But if your golfing buddies are sacred, you know that, right? Yeah. <laughs> so there's an asterisk. You know, I played golf. 
I played golf with a lot of guys on the other team. But, right. but those were the guys who were your friends. And that's, you know, that's not an isolated case because a lot of guys didn't play golf. We're only talking about maybe one or two guys on each team. So it was, li- it was a little rare back then, but the guys who loved it always played together with other members of the other team. Because when I come hey, to your the- city, Chris, I'm going to say, hey, Chris, let's go. What are we playing? Clyde, I got a golf cor- course right outside my house. I'm looking at it right now, and I don't have clubs, so you got to teach me. And actually, off, off, you know, uh, as, a, as, as a side note here, Frank Burkowski texted me last night, and he, he said, stop faking your handicap is what he told me to tell you. <laughs> what a knucklehead. <laughs> yeah, he is, he is a fucking knucklehead. I'm going to tell him, too. Um, I look, I, I'm looking forward to seeing, um, you know, whatever episode it gets to where it talks about, you know, the 92 finals, because um, I'm a long-suffering Knicks fan, and uh, I, ha- I had to actually choose a Western Conference team to root for, and I've, I, I like the Blazers, so... I like those teams that you guys had. Um, I, I thought that I always wonder what might have been in, in a lot of different ways had they had they done a done a better job um, organizationally of of getting you guys uh, the players you needed to to go on a run um, where you, where you had multiple championships. I mean, obviously the draft with Sam and Jordan that was a big what might have been, um, but that series going into it. Uh, what did you know you had to do to win that series? What What did you guys talk about going to that? Because I think you guys played them once that year, right? And you kind of had a yeah, sample of, of the matchup. Yeah, yeah, we yeah we only played the Bulls once in Chicago, once in Portland every year, right? So we right. we knew what to expect. We had been playing, you know, 1990, the Trailblazers were in the finals versus the Pistons, and the Pistons beat the Bulls. And so we made it to the finals first. <laughs> and in 91... Yeah. We we had the best record in the entire NBA, but we lost to the Lakers in the Western Conference Finals, and there was a strong sentiment for Michael Magic Final. So so you can imagine right. that. And so we lose right. that, and, and the Bulls won their first championship in '91. And in '92, people are excited because they're like the Trailblazers are due. They're back in the finals. The Bulls have a have a win. This is going to be a great final. So we expected a a, a really competitive uh, final, but. That year, Chris, that was the first year I was ever injured. I, I hurt mm-hmm. my right meniscus, and, and I could have, you know, I could have easily have had surgery in March when I did it. But, I, you know, they, they told me I wouldn't do any more damage. I could barely jump on it, but I could run on it. And so that was the first injury in, in nine years I'd ever had in the game of basketball. And so now, right. to not only be in the finals, to make it to the finals, playing with on basically a, a one-and-a-half leg, to play the Bulls, Michael, in the finals and on a national showdown was tough because you're injured. But you can't. back then, we didn't put a bullseye on an injury because guys would go kick you right in the leg, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so you have to just keep it quiet, do the best you can. Either you play and, and, and live with the results or you don't play. And so that's the way it was. And so to, to go through all that with one and a half legs, and, uh, you know, I thought our team played well. They just had a better team. Uh, they, they, Michael was incredible and, uh, they were able to win that series, but it, it was a lot of fun, but to take it even after that, now I need surgery, but now you got a chance to play on the dream team. So now I can't get surgery. Even then I got to keep getting my leg drained and, and do whatever I can do to stay healthy for the duration of the Olympics. I end up not getting my surgery until September 
of that year, which which, mm-hmm. be, which is a tough time if you've ever been injured, especially for the first time. So that was yeah. those, those are all great memories. But it, it was bittersweet for me because you were not a hundred percent. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean that that had to. I mean it's hard enough to beat to beat the Bulls and MJ, and you guys were the two premier wing guys in the league, and um, not being at full speed has had to suck going into that. But I mean, it felt like to me you guys were a team that that were you know people were pulling for to get over the hump. You know, you mentioned the Bulls maybe being the better all round team, but you and MJ were. The guys, um, was there was there a sense that the media tried to make this thing a bigger personal rivalry between y'all than it actually was? I mean, obviously, it seems like from hearing you talk about it, you respect MJ, but obviously, you never backed down. Um, you never conceded oh. anything to him. Chris, you know that's not in our DNA. Come on now. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> humility. Yep. Humility is a good thing. You give credit where credit is due. But you, mm-hmm. at the end of the day, you got to go out and do your job, too. So you respect yeah. your, your competition, and you live for that competition. I loved it. And so I wouldn't mm-hmm. change it for nothing in the world, you know. I, I'd play on one leg if I could. And, and so just to be able to compete and, and do whatever you can do to help your team, that's what sports is all about, you know. And, 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 and absolutely, you're going to win some, you're going to lose some. But the sheer brilliance of competition is what we've thrived on, right? And so yeah. you have to be able to live with the results, win, lose, or draw, and and and, and right. not make excuses. Because you know, you, I'll show you a guy with excuses, and I'll show you a, a loser. You know, you right. you have to live with whatever results you have, and and give the other team credit. That's one thing uh, guys in our era did very well. What do you think the? Well, they also never. Had, I mean, I feel like a lot of guys didn't have the opportunity to make excuses either, because you know. No microphone shoved in your face, like like to the degree they're having now. Um, so guys just had to play. I mean, there was no there was no choice. I mean, there was you couldn't you you couldn't make an excuse. Um, and that and I want to ask you about that in a moment. The difference between you know the media craze now and and how players handle it versus back in the day. But with the Blazers, I mean, they broke that thing up over the next two three years after that run. Here's what it's like: the great teams in in every sport. Why are they great? Because they got a lot of good talent all playing at their peak at the same time, right? So right. you look at the Lakers, the Celtics, all the Bulls, all those great teams. Those guys had three or four, five Hall of Famers together on that team at that time. That's why they were great. And you look at those Portland teams, and you go, where you know you, you had you had one Hall of Famer, uh, which was me, but but then the other guys were really good players. Uh, but but they, they, they never could get that extra player to, to help you win. And in a team sports, you've got to have a good team. It's, it's got to be a team effort. One guy is not going to do it. Two guys are not going to do it. You need a total team effort. And if you come up short, the good teams are going to beat you. That happens in every sport, Chris. Absolutely. And, you know, a, a miss in free agency or in the draft can be magnified so much in the NBA because there's less players. I, I wanted to ask you about the Michael – um, and, and Sam thing in the draft, obviously everybody knows that one, but were there near misses, you know, in your tenure in, in, in Portland where you said, Hey, I'd really like to snag that guy or we can make this trade. Uh, and, and that would have helped you guys take that thing to the next level. Or was it just a collection of things? Yeah, well, I was always in the general manager's office trying to, trying to figure out a way to get better players. You know, I came from five slim and where we had a really just an all-star mm-hmm. team of college players. 
And so I was mm-hmm. used to winning, playing with a lot of great players. And then I get to Portland, and I used to I used to laugh with Magic Johnson all the time. I go, Magic, you think you really are something, and you are. You don't. You're doing good. You're Magic Johnson. But you, if you let me play with Kareem and Worthy, we'd be pretty oh, yeah. good. <laughs> oh yeah. And so it's, it's one of those things where if you're playing with great teammates, you're going to be a really great team. But if you got guys on ten day contracts and you're playing against those great teams, uh, the expectation level is, is going to be a lot lower. <laughs> yeah, I remember you guys playing. Well, I don't remember it in real time, but looking back, you guys playing against the Lakers with all those great players, and you had what three, four guys on ten-day contract. On oh, ten-day contract, and I was, I was like, really, dude? How are you going to yeah. send me to battle with this? But that's sports. Well, you know, some, some some general managers are better than others, and when you when you're on one of those teams that's not quite up to par, Chris, you still have to be professional. You still have to go out and play but your expectation level is not going to be as high. I'm looking at the draft, and everybody knows that near miss with Jordan and and Sam, and I know you guys had a number of wing players accumulated from the last few years, including yourself, and obviously you were one of the best players in the league, so it might have been counterintuitive to snag Mike on top of you and then what you already had in that that position, but did you volley for Mike to – to be the pick, and do you think that had he been the pick, it would have changed basketball in some way that we, we could never imagine? Absolutely. Let me let, let me give you the real rundown, Chris. You know Michael Thompson, Clay Thompson's dad, right? Yeah. Who plays for the Warriors. Michael Thompson was the number one pick in 78 from the Bahamas, went to Minnesota. Well, Michael was yep. a 6'10 center who could really play, averaging about 18, 10, and two blocks, right? So we had a center. And so when we lost the coin flip for Hakeem Olajuwon, we, we, we called the wrong heads or tail, right? So we lost the coin flip, so we lose Hakeem. So now you go from not getting Hakeem, and now it's Sam Bowie or Jordan, and, and Michael Thompson and I went to the general manager's office, a guy named Stu Inman, and Stu Inman, we begged him to, to draft Jordan. Michael Thompson said in these exact words in 1984, he said, Stu, if you draft Jordan, him and Clyde are going to dominate this league for the next 10, 15 years. Are you kidding me? That's a no-brainer. Mm-hmm. Stu Emmons' direct response was, Michael, we need a seven-footer to be legit. <laughs> Remember the Bill Walton era as the championship they won in Portland? He said they need a seven-footer to be legit. Jordan is another two-guard like Clyde. We can't keep repeating the same problems. Now, this is what he meant by that. We had a guy named Jim Paxson from Dayton, who was a great player, all-star, who was yeah. starting two guard, right? And, yeah. and, and I, I, I was coming along, and they didn't know if I was going to play the one, two, or the three the next year, right? So, and, and, and Michael Thompson told him, and no, with no hesitation, Clyde Jordan can play four or five positions. Put, just put him on the floor, right? And right. of course, Stu Inman was like, no, we got to have positions. And so, the year before they drafted me, they drafted a guy named Jeff Lamp from Virginia. He was the two guard. They had Jim Paxson. Yeah, UVA. I remember. Yeah, I, I remember him. Yeah, and then they, they had Jim Paxson, who was an all-star. They had me. They drafted me. They're like, we can't keep drafting the same position year after year. That's the real reason why they didn't do it. And that's a shame right. because I'm, I, I, I'm thinking about winning and getting these good guys on your team because we want to – play at a very high level. That's the reason we play. And and so right. we not only did I not get Hakeem, I didn't get Michael. And and, and I was like, wow, this and Sam, who's a great guy and had a lot of talent. 
to his credit. It's not his fault. His body just gave out. But yeah, had he Sam been healthy, healthy, yeah, had he been healthy, we would have been pretty good. But he, you know, he just wasn't healthy very often. But it was a no-brainer back then. Michael Jordan was the obvious choice, maybe for the first spot, certainly for the second. Well, plus, I mean, you know, it, Sam couldn't stay healthy. Uh, you know, it, it's tough for him because had he been picked in any other number of drafts, you know, nobody remembers. Um, it's not a big deal. You know how many misses or relative misses there are in the top 10 in the NBA draft perpetually? He just he had to be the most unlucky person in the history of anybody who got drafted in the first round of any major sport. Yeah, because, you know, he, he just drafted before Michael, who became one of the greatest players ever. And, and, and then Portland, here, here's the problem. They made the same mistake years later when they drafted Greg Oden over mm-hmm. Kevin Durant. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah, they, the, they and, were and, bitten and, by the injury bug. <laughs> so so how did Sam handle that? Was was, was he – because that's the one thing that gets lost a lot. And whenever I think about it, I'm like, you know, I, I kind of feel bad for him because all he did was work his ass off to get picked in the first round. He, 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 he was just fine in the NBA, couldn't stay healthy, as you mentioned. But, you know, obviously there weren't a lot of guys that were Jordan. So did, did he – did he remain mentally strong through that? Does he carry that burden? Um, how did that go? Sam, good good question, Chris. Thank you for asking that. Sam was a great guy, one of the best guys ever. He was a, he had a great sense of humor, but Sam was a competitor at heart. And so he, he was longing to play and help out and help the team, but he just couldn't get it done. So he, he had a couple of good years with the New Jersey Nets and with the Lakers later on in his career when he got – semi-healthy, but but I'm telling you, Sam held, Sam Bowie, if he had been healthy, would have been one of the better big men in the game. Uh, and, and at that time, the monster was Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, so they felt they needed someone to kind of balance him out. Yeah. What would have happened if it was you and Jordan? How, how, how do you, if you were the coach, um, if you're a ba- you are a basketball historian, how do you work that out in your head? Like, what would you guys have been able to do, and how would the, the style of play been altered in that era because of just what you guys did together? Well, you know, we did everything, so you could put us anywhere. Also, you know, we, we obviously, good players will find a way to play together 100% of the time, right, and make it easy. But playing with Jordan would have been great and easy to do, but we also had a guy named Kiki Vandeway who was averaging about 29 points a game and Michael Thompson on that team. You talk about a, a, one of the best offensive teams ever assembled. That would have been it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we have five to 10 championships. I guarantee you. Yeah. I I believe you. And, and even in that, even in that era where you could make an argument and I'm watching the, listen, you can't take anything away with, from what Mike did and what the Bulls did and what Phil did and that whole group. Because, they, I mean, just like watching last night, there's a whole generation of kids right now that didn't realize how good Scottie Pippen is and was. Right, um, exactly. I mean, I think that was the biggest revolu- revelation in the first two episodes last night was if you were born in the 90s or in the 2000s, which makes me feel old as hell, there's a lot of people watching – you know, fixated on the documentary, they're probably saying, holy shit, Scotty Pippen was good. There were a lot of good players on that team. But I wonder if in the 80s, the Bulls had played, you know, with, with the Lakers, with the Celtics, with the Pistons, with y'all, um, how many championships they would have been able to win. 
Well, I tell you what, it, it, it took the Bulls a long time to get out the East. Remember, from the 76ers with Moses and Doc, the Celtics with Bird and Parrish, the, the Pistons with Isaiah and Joe and uh, Lambeer, those guys are all super teams. And so for Chicago, just to get out the East was a big deal. And for the West, the Lakers had the lock. I mean, they had four or five number one picks playing together right. at the same time. Who's going to beat them, Chris? And so for Portland to get out of the West when we did was a tr- phenomenal feat. We, Michael yeah. and I both played at a time, and we're playing against super teams. And in, and, yeah. and those super teams were in supermarkets. <laughs> and so mm-hmm. Michael happened to be in a great market in Chicago, but Portland was not a big market at the time. I think that hurt us. I really do. Right. And you wonder, had, had Mike been picked in Portland, he would have realized what you probably realized, which is that while Portland is probably a wonderful place to play, marketability-wise, I mean, you're, you're, you know, the household name factor, although you're one of the best to ever play the game, you know, imagine if you played in Chicago. Oh, New York. Oh, my God. Yeah, and or New York. people would say that all the time. If you played in New York, oh, everybody would have a, a candy bar named after you. <laughs> right. <laughs> we played the game yeah. for sheer competition. I didn't play the game to be marketed. That wasn't a yeah. part of the game in the 80s, right? I wish it had been because <laughs> it would have mm-hmm. been fun. But I, I, yeah. I just wanted to play against the best competition, Chris. And for me, let me tell you, the biggest moment of my NBA career was the first day I put on that uniform and you realize you have made an NBA team. That was my dream. Everything yeah, yeah. else was downhill. Well, getting to the end of it, um, as far as your career was concerned, you ended up back, uh, back home in Houston. Um, you know, and I can, this is when I really started watching basketball live. So I can remember, um, you ending up in Houston. It was late in the season, right? In a trade. Yep. It was Valentine's day. Uh, at the All-Star okay. break, 1995, yeah. I had a chance yeah. for Portland. Was, they, they were starting to – they traded away my big guy, and they were starting to dilute a championship-level team. And so I was like, they're, they're, they're trying to rebuild, so let me get out of here while I can still play so I can pursue a chance at a championship. And the opportunity to go home at, at, to Houston and play with Hakeem again, uh, who had won the championship the year before, was a tremendous honor. I mean, and I didn't think it was going to happen, but when it did, I was, I was excited and exuberated. And, and, and lo and behold, Chris, we're able to win a championship right away. Now, you know that's something out of a storybook. <laughs> yeah, good it, had to feel like a dr- it had to feel like a dream. There were a couple things about that little time period that were really interesting to me. The first being that I think a lot of people think about, you know, MJ was out. Well, MJ came back late that same year and you guys, I think, I mean, you swept the Magic, right? And the Magic swept well, the Bulls. Yeah, the Magic swept the Bulls easily. And uh, MJ was back, and uh, and the Magic was just young, and they were good. They had a young Shaq, Shaquille O'Neal. They had a young Penny Hardaway, who was phenomenal. They had uh, guys mm-hmm. like Dennis Scott, Horace Grant. I mean, they had some really good players on that team, and they were well coached. Yeah. And so that's the reason they swept the Bulls that year. They were better. Uh, Michael obviously uh, was was not in his tip top form, but he was he was at a high level, playing at a very very high level. Yeah, I mean the, the second thing about that thing was you guys win the championship. Uh, the next year, I think it's the next year. Was it the next year you guys added Chuck, or was it two years later? It was two years later, nineteen ninety seven. My last two years, I played with uh, Charles Barkley, 
and and, yeah. and we're all get, we're all getting a little up in age, but very competitive. <laughs> now, Charles is one of my all-time favorites. Also, you know, with this Philly presence, I got to meet him a couple times in Philly. He was he was terrific. Um, everything you'd you'd want Charles Barkley to be. Um, but when he got to you guys, he was kind of. I know he had to take a backseat a little bit and be more of the rebounder, right? I mean, he wasn't the guy from his, his son's days or uh, the Sixers' days. How did he make that adjustment? What kind of a teammate was he like? Was he everything he was cracked up to be? Well, we all were, you know, not quite as good as we had been. I was in year 13 or 14, and Charles was in year 12 or 13. And so, and so Hakeem was in year 12 or 13. And so we're still yeah. good, and we had won 57 games, uh, but but and could have won more, but we started resting toward the last uh, month. But uh, we were we were primed to, to 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 compete for a championship his first year in Houston. Um, we got upset mm-hmm. in, in Game Seven uh, in, in Utah. Had we not lost that series, I think we would have met the Bulls in the finals. That would have been a lot of fun. <laughs> that would have been yeah. great. And then the next year, Charles gained a little weight, was overweight, never really got in shape, but still had to, you know, Charles was, when he got that ball down low, he was tough. I mean, he could still give up, he could still put up numbers anytime he wanted to. This, the right. thing is, the consistency. The consistency was not there for all of us. Not only for him, but for all of us. But on any given night, we could but, all give you 30. <laughs> that roster, you weren't in your primes, but still, damn good players, and you won almost 60 games. I look back at that run that year, and I know you guys swept Minnesota, okay? That's, and then you go up three one on the Sonics, and then they come back and force Game Seven. So you get to Utah, and I think that's a six game series. Do you think that letting the Sonics back in a little bit contributed to maybe an older nucleus running out of gas a little bit in Utah? If if it hadn't been such a long series in Seattle, might we have seen um, a Houston Chicago final? And how would that matchup have been? Oh, that would have been great, Chris. I mean, it's just great competition. And, and you know, I, I, I hate the what ifs, as, you know, we've been talking about a few of them. But what actually happened was pretty good. Uh, Utah was a better team that year. They had gotten yeah. tired and getting beat for so many years, not only by Houston, but years before that by Portland. And so they were sick of me. Right. They were sick right. of Elijah one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't blame them. They kept beating them year after year. So, the law of averages kicked in, and they and they won that series. Give them credit. <laughs> is it un, is it unfair to judge Chuck by the rings thing? Because I've heard you talk about this before. You know, it's and you certainly alluded to it a little bit in this interview. Is that you know it's a team game. Um, and I, and I see people get on Chuck about the ring thing, but he's one of the best players I ever saw. Chuck could really play. He was a phenomenal player. He doesn't, you know, he, he people don't know what a good player he was. I think his defense waned at the end of his career, and you, and you know that that wasn't a strong suit. But he was a good defender when he was young. Uh, but but right. at the end of the day, he had a Hall of Fame career. Nothing to be ashamed of. I I love playing with Chuck. We go out to dinner each and every night. And if you can remember, that was during that time when he was he was fighting. <laughs> he, he was mm-hmm. knocking people out. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I know he got in a fight with Oakley in preseason that year. Yeah, so the coach would always say, Clyde, you watch him. You go with him, you watch him, right? So and Chuck yeah. and I were good friends. And so I'd say, Chuck, what are we doing tonight? And I'd make sure I'd sit by him and make sure he didn't go after anybody. 
But uh, he, you know, he, awesome. got, he got loose a couple times. <laughs> That's awesome. But he was, uh, Chuck and Chuck, he's a knucklehead, but he's a lot of fun to be around. And, and, and we had a good time. I want to hit you with a couple quick hitters before I let you go again. I really appreciate the time, Clyde. Um, okay, so I heard that you once dunked on an 11-foot-1 rim in Portland. That was the record. Um how high a rim could you dunk on today? I know you can still dunk. Where, where, where's the vert at right now? At how old? How old are you now, Clyde? Oh, Chris, it'd be hard to jump over. You know, the thing is, as you get older, you know, you, I can still jump because you don't lose it. I, I stay in decent shape, right? I, but it yeah. hurts when you land. It hurts when you land. <laughs> I hear that, dude. So, but back in the heyday, think... Chris, I could put my hand on top of the backboard. Yeah. The whole, the whole backboard. And, and there are only a few guys I've ever heard about doing that. Bill Russell was one. They say, Bill Russell, if you left a dollar on top of the backboard, he could take the dollar and drop some change. And so, <laughs> that was Bill Russell. And so Chamberlain, yeah. obviously, was the other. And uh, I hadn't heard of too many guys being able to top, touch the top of the backboard. So back in well, the day, I, mean, I got those, lucky once or twice. Those guys were taller, so I'm going to give you the nod there. Um, <laughs> okay, so who was the most media-friendly player in the 80s and 90s if things were the way they are now? Who would have been the guy with the production company? Who would have been the guy with their own blog, their own show? Who would have been the guy on every network every day? Wow, man, that, that's a great question. Um, it, 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 it wouldn't have been the superstar guys like you have today. Because those guys are too busy. It's, it's too much work. Like you said earlier, you spend all your time icing, eating, getting prepared mm -hmm. for the next meal. That's all we did. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and so I, yeah. I wouldn't have had time to do any blogging, trust me. Uh, uh, <laughs> but, but, but it would have been the guys who didn't play as much, like the seventh or eighth men, who had time mm -hmm. to do that kind of stuff. Uh, but, you know, guys were media friendly. We were media, media savvy in the 80s and 90s. And uh, but not nothing like what you guys have gone through. So, is there one guy that you can remember you played with that that we were robbed of, of not knowing their ridiculous personality? Oh yeah, I played with a guy named Allah Abdanabi who, who went to Duke. Okay, was the one of the funniest, most entertaining guys ever. I think he still does color commentary for one of the NBA teams, but hysterical guy. It kept me Good. laughing the whole time. Sam Cassell who's the assistant coach for the Clippers, one of the yep. funniest guys you'll ever be around. Trust me. Really? <laughs> That's great. I remember, Sam. Change one rule today. If you were the commissioner of the NBA, you're the commissioner of the big three, but you never know someday, what rule are you changing about the game today or the way it's structured? I would change the one and done rule. I would change uh, <laughs> a couple of things. <laughs> but Adam Silver... Yeah. He's such a stand-up guy. I love him. I mean, he does a phenomenal job. And so I, I, I'd hate to say I'd change anything because Adam is going to—he's going to eventually get it all right, as he always does. But uh, the NBA—it's a great product. Love watching it. Can't wait for it to come back when it's safe. And uh, we're, we're going to miss football, Chris. You know, I'm a big football fan. Uh, obviously, yeah. I love baseball too, and tennis and golf. Who's your favorite NFL team? Because I—I I don't know if I've—I've I've heard this one. Well, you know, I, I used I grew up loving the Cowboys, right? Even though mm -hmm. I live in Houston, the, the Houston Oilers, and then they went to Tennessee, right? 
Mm-hmm. And they still had the same players, so I was rooting for Tennessee because it was the same mm-hmm. team. And, and yeah. now, you know, I really don't have a team about the last 15 years. I was rooting for your Eagles just there because it's go. a great story. And, and, and the Eagles have struggled for so long. It was great to see you guys win. Plus, I was rooting for you, Chris. <laughs> I appreciate and, and that, so, man. Closest comp to you in today's game. Oh, I hate to compare because you may be doing a guy a disservice. Uh, Man, uh, hey, if I'm in the NBA today and I woke up and I heard Clyde Drexler compared me to him, I would be flattered. <laughs> well, thank you, Chris. But, you know, I, I, I've always been one of those guys that say you're good enough on your own merits. You don't really need to be compared to anybody, yeah. right? Yeah. It's like they, they have that conversation, who's better, LeBron, Kobe, or Michael? Give me either one of them, dude. <laughs> yeah. It wouldn't matter. Yeah. Who's better, Kareem, yeah. Russell, or Chamberlain? Give me either one of them. I mean, those mm-hmm. guys are phenomenal. So now yeah. I've never seen anybody better than like Dr. J or better than Larry Bird. You know, who's better than those guys? They're all phenomenal. So it's hard. It's hard to make those kind of comparisons. You know, I don't even. Well, like isn't it. it? Isn't it also really hard to to compare players a across generation, but b ignoring the context with which and we've talked about this players play. I mean, you know. One team, it, they might have better potential with one player. You know, the next team, their skill set, their strengths might be better unlocked with a different type of player. So I never – I know everybody's doing this MJ or LeBron thing during this whole uh, documentary. That's if you turn on first take, that's kind of what we're talking about. But I think it's it's a useless exercise to me. Completely. Because you're never going to win yeah. that. I mean, there is no real definitive answer. And you just say yeah. both of them are phenomenal. They – they dominated during their day, and that's all you can really go by. And so yeah. you have to respect excellence. And to say someone yeah. was better, are you kidding? I mean, yeah. who's better than Elgin Baylor? That, I mean, I've heard some of the greatest ever say he's the best player they've ever seen. Right. And so, you know, you got all these differences of opinion, but what you do is you respect excellence. And, 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 and that's what I do well. I give guys credit where credit is due. And Chris, Love talking to you. You've been a stand-up guy all your life. Uh, anytime I can come on and, 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 and yuck it up, uh, it, it's, it's a pleasure. Well, I appreciate you, Clyde. And uh, we'll have you on another time. And, uh, and stay safe. I look forward to the big three. I look forward to it. Thank you very much. And continued success, sir. Thank you so much, ma'am. See ya. All right. Bye-bye. Okay, so that was Clyde Drexler. What a, um, what a cool dude. I mean... That's somebody who has a really good perspective. Uh, it's interesting to me the the undertone of listen, I respect the hell out of MJ and all these greats, but I don't like putting labels on anything. Uh, and it didn't seem like he. Uh, although I did, I, I I heard at one point that Clyde had anointed Wilt as probably the goat, but um, it didn't seem like he was ready to just go ahead and concede anything at any point in his career, um, and even now respected Jordan, respect the guys he played against. But there's something with Clyde that I always wonder, and I didn't want to ask him, you know, about it the entire interview, but does he resent the fact that he played in a small market and his tenure on the Blazers, which were not a superior team to a lot of the teams they were playing, overlap with so many great teams? I mean, how many titles could he have won with a Robin like Scottie Pippen? Um, and you have to wonder, as a competitor, I mean, I, I'm not going to sit here and, and, and say he's better than Jordan, but um, 
I certainly can understand in a competitor's mind how he might think, hell, if I'd have had a little more help or if I'd have been playing in a different time period, maybe we have more titles. Uh, so interesting talking to Clyde. Great, great having him on. Seems like a really good dude. And I'm excited for the big three. Things that we really are desperate to see, if it's safe, uh, sporting events. Um you know, the big three, you know, the the draft this Thursday. We had MJ last night. We're going to have MJ every week through May. You know, maybe the the part of this thing where there's absolutely nothing to talk about sports related is kind of past. Uh, that doesn't mean we're going to get back to normal or society is going to be going along with uh, the opportunity, the trend for opportunity for, for sports content. But the draft is going to give us some stuff to talk about this week. It's going to give us something to watch. And listen, I know it can seem trivial to have people's uh, names flashing across the ticker as they make millions of dollars, you know, 18, 19-year-olds, and it is a trying time for people economically. Uh, but we always say that in hardship, you know, sports can be an outlet for people. So why is it different now? Um, you know, and I would ask, was it insensitive to get back to playing football, um, and getting back to playing football, uh, a week after nine 11? No, the, the country needed that. Um, so I think that sports can boost morale. If we can do it safely, great. Big three. I hope that's coming down the pipe eventually. Uh, that reality show seems really interesting. Uh, and then, you know, the draft this week. I'm going to give you my draft rundown in like five minutes based on a Mel Kuyper, uh, you know, whatever it is, 47.0 mock draft. Uh, you know, I'm excited about it. Look forward to it. Hope everybody can do it safely. Hope nobody gets hacked. Why do I have this sneaking suspicion that we're going to like see somebody's dick mid-Zoom uh, and like the Russians are going to hack the uh, – the, the draft process, and it's going to be just a disaster for the NFL. But if it's not, and it runs smoothly, uh, I'm pretty excited about it. So uh, as we look at it, uh, you know, the biggest question marks position group-wise for me are wide receiver and quarterback, okay? You know, D-line, I'm looking at it, it's not a dominant class. You're going to see Chase Young picked high. You're going to see... Uh, the kid from LSU is probably the next highest uh, picked edge rusher, and that could be 10, 15 picks. I don't know. Um, you know, wide receivers, very deep. Everybody knows that right now. But the thing about the wide receiver class is that a lot of scouts don't think there's a top-end hit like a Calvin Johnson or a Julio or some Hall of Famer. Uh, my favorite player out of the wide receiver class, I know I'm not alone here, is uh, C.D. Lamb. Where does he get picked? Or does somebody like Judy better? Or is there a wild card? Jefferson has rose uh, on boards. I don't know if he's going to rise into the top 10, though. Uh, Kuyper's got him going, I think, 15 to the Broncos. You know, so one, how deep is the class? Two, where, like, for instance, in the teens, do you snag a wide receiver? Do you just wait? Because there's, there's going to be still good players, the depth of that class, in the second round. So why reach? Um, and then, and then you know, and then three, who's going to hit on one of these guys? Because it does seem like out of the first-round guys, um, you know, not all of them are going to pan out. There's going to be an abundance of wide receivers taken early. Um, quarterback, it's a, it's a flawed quarterback class. It really is. Every guy has a flaw. 
um, and we'll go through that really quickly right now. Let's go through the top five as Mel has it, and we're going to talk a lot more about this thing on Wednesday. Um, you know, he's got Burrow going to Cincy, okay? It's the one big unknown is how how much Cincy really likes Burrow, uh, but we can safely assume that he's headed to Cincy. You also have to wonder how much geography plays a factor in this thing. If Miami is staring down the barrel at Joe Burrow at one, it's a lot different than if Cincinnati is staring down the barrel at the hometown kid. I know it, it's inconsequential on the field, but from a perception standpoint, a miss on a Joe Burrow, if you let him walk and he ends up in Miami or somewhere in some weird alternate universe that Cincinnati doesn't like Burrow and likes Herbert better or something, not saying it's going to happen. And Burrow is a hit in Miami. It exponentially raises the disappointment because the kid grew up an hour away from Cincinnati. And I know fans are probably praying they get it right. Um, and getting it right could be Burrow, but he could be a one-year wonder at LSU. People have talked about that. People talk about his arm. People talk about Joe Brady, his departure. Um, obviously, you're going to find out how, how important he was to that offense, but you're also going to find out maybe eventually here how important Brady was to Burrow. At two, this is an interesting spot. Uh, Chase Young uh, is, is, is the consensus pick for Washington. Hey, defensive head coach, you've got Allen, Collins, Sweat, Payne, and, um, and, and, and you could add Young to that. Now, you, you don't have a second rounder, so you could be a trade-back candidate. Maybe you don't love Chase Young as much as everybody else. I don't know. Um, so you could trade back, accumulate picks. The interesting thing here is Kerrigan. People have really rode off Ryan Kerrigan. Ryan Kerrigan's had some injuries, but he had five and a half sacks last year. He had 13 and 13 uh, the two years prior, respectively. This guy has done nothing but do numbers. Yes, he, he wins some favorable matchups, and he, and, he, and he just relentlessly rushes. That's what's on his mind. Um, so he's not a Von Miller necessarily. Uh, but this guy's damn good, and he's had a really, really good career. Wasted in Washington, but a really, really, really good career. And we're only giving him a year's leash here before we just write him off. I know there's a four-three thing. I know you got to put your hand in the dirt. Um, I, you know, I got to look closely at the contract stuff. But why is he got to be the third end if they do select Chase Young? Shouldn't Montez Sweat have to prove it? Why is everybody saying? And I'm reading this. Well, Kerrigan could be the Chris Long, you know, the the, the vet who's over the hill. I was 33, 34 uh, when I when I ended up in in New England and 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 Philly, and I had really good production uh, from a pressure and sack standpoint. But Kerrigan could could still string together a double digit year, especially if you rush him in volume and you don't fuck him over. I don't know why people are writing him off so much. I can't quite. I, am I doing that right? I can't quite put my finger on why. I can't quite. But I think if another guy had 80-plus sacks and was two years removed from a 13-sack year, mind you, there was another 13-sack year before that, uh, you, you would feel differently about it. Um, okay, Detroit. Okuda is the is the consensus pick. But what about an Indy New York Jets type trade? Um, you know, a trade back that Indy did a couple years ago to facilitate Sam Darnold going to New York. Detroit could could haul in a bunch of picks. Listen, they had a franchise quarterback last year that got hurt. They were at the top of the NFL in a bunch of categories offensively. Um, you know, they could end up in, I'm not saying they're like the Niners, but they could end up in a situation like that where the injury to their franchise quarterback has catapulted them up the draft board. They could trade back and get a number of picks. Um, they could trade back with somebody and uh, and pick up a, a corner later. Um 
you know, Patricia and Quinn are on a short list or leash. We'll see what happens. Um, if I'm then, maybe I'm thinking if I don't absolutely love Okuda and don't think he's going to change the game for us in a year, volume might be better. New York at four, he's got Simmons. Okay, if I'm picking in the top five, Simmons for me, if I know how to use him, and you should because the NFL is in nickel as much as anybody. They're in sub uh, as much as any time in the history of the game. Uh, Simmons is a slam dunk. I like Simmons relative to his position better than anybody in the top five. Um, and that includes Chase Young. Listen, there's not a big tackle drop off either. So if you wanna if you wanna wait, you can you can snag one later for the Giants. But if they are looking at tackle, it's Worfs, Thomas, Becton, and those are all three interesting case studies in how the Giants are thinking. Worfs would be the upside guy, Thomas would be the pro ready guy from Georgia, and Becton would be the big, powerful, tantalizing, physical specimen that, hey, with a little bit of coaching, he could be could it be Orlando Pace? Could he be could he be, you know, Ogden? Could it be one of these massive tackles? You saw what Trent Brown has done for two teams the last two years. He's a big, powerful guy like that. Okay, with Simmons, uh, look Looking at his numbers, you know, he played 100 snaps outside linebacker, 300 and inside linebacker, 250 in the slot, 250 at free safety. He's played all over the field. I, I don't think you can go wrong plugging him into that defense. Miami at five. Mel Kuyper has Herbert in a bit of a shocker here for some. Not to me. Okay. I'm not high on Tua right now. It's not like I don't like Tua or don't think he could be a great player, but the health stuff, it's too much of a scare for me. Listen, even if he gets over the hump and he's good in the first four or five years, you usually want a quarterback that you draft in the, draft in the top five to be at least a two-contract guy, a long-term solution. And uh, I don't know, man. Like That hip thing, is, it's a ticking time bomb. It could be a second-contract minefield. He's an RPO guy. In college, they, they kind of ran a simple, a simple thing, man. I mean, it was pitch and catch. Um, you know, you worry about the injuries. It's not just the hip. Two high ankle surgeries. I had a high ankle sprain that I played through my contract year, shot it up every week. I didn't have surgery. It was a motherfucker. It changed my ankle flexion forever. And as a pass rusher, I never got it back, okay? Now, I got paid because I had 13 sacks. Uh, but I don't know, man. Was it worth the risk? It changed It changed my mobility. He has two surgeries uh, you know, repairing high ankles. Uh, he also fell hard a lot at Bama. I mean, he got beat up. First off, players at Bama get beat up uh, all the time. That's a rep that Bama has accumulated. Now, it's it's not, you know, at quarterback right now, you wouldn't think quarterbacks get beat up, you know, like like position players at Bama, but but he's no, uh, he's no exception. Um, big injury history, and I don't know how much they grinded him. Steve Young's the comp. You know, but on the lefty topic, another thing is the last five players picked in the first round as quarterbacks who are lefties, only one wasn't a bust, and that was Michael Vick. So take that for what it's worth. Uh, Miami with Herbert, they've got three picks in the first round. If they can nail Herbert, if Herbert's a hit for them, I mean, this is something that could could have them set for the next 10, 15 years, and they could be contenders. Of course, that's what you say anytime you pick in the top five with a quarterback, but Miami has already started to accumulate talent through the draft. I mean, their window could be wide open for a while here if Herbert is the right guy and they do take him. At, at six, the Chargers, uh, Tua, you know, again, you could just take, Cam Newton and uh, and take a proven commodity, if he's healthy and you're satisfied, he could last another four or five years. You know, Tua could last four or five years, and he's not a proven commodity in the NFL. I don't know. 
Uh, Carolina's got Derek Brown up there. I'm interested to see how far Kinlaw rises. He's one of my favorite players in the draft. He's got him going 18, I believe. Uh, I think he might not last that long, but if Miami gets him at 18, man, they're having a, a heck of a first round. At eight, he has Arizona grabbing Worfs. Don't mind it. Again, I like Andrew Thomas. I'd play it safe with a tackle instead of taking the upside guy. Uh, and he's got Jacksonville taking Judy first to add to Shark and Westbrook. Um, Shark and Westbrook. That could be a really, really nasty receiving core, but who's throwing to him? I mean, you're going all in on on uh, on on Minshew there. And then Cleveland attendees got taken back then, which I think makes sense. They got Conklin. Uh, uh, you know, in an alternate universe, if the Browns you know, lost a few of those meaningless games they won last year. Could you imagine if they had Chase Young and Miles Garrett? Uh, we'll never get to see it, but we could get to see Garrett and Clowney, which would be a motherfucker. Um, and then the Raiders. That The big question for me as I go through the back end of this first round is the Raiders. What do they do? They have two picks in the teens. Uh, Mel has C.J. Henderson from Florida, the corner who, by the way, people don't think the gap between him, him and Okuda is huge. Um, they got them snagging him at 12. Uh, you know, he also has on this mock draft, I think he has, um, the Raiders snagging Jordan Love at like 19. And I actually like that. I don't know about Jordan Love, but I like the fact that I I like the possibility that the Raiders snag a quarterback. I really do. I I feel like they've been angling toward that for quite a while. Um, you know, Gruden hasn't really had his young guy to groom yet. Uh, they could snag him. One of the picks of the first round here could be CeeDee Lamb at about 13 with the Niners here uh, that Mel has said will happen. They lost Sanders uh, in free agency. He should be um, the first receiver off the board, in my opinion. But if he falls to the Niners, good for them. They'll need to snag one in the first. Uh, they don't have a two, three, or four. They could trade down. Uh but they, they have two first-round picks. So Jefferson from LSU has been rising, uh, and and Mel thinks he's going to go 15 to uh, to Denver. And that'd be a good thing for the Eagles, who are definitely going to take a wide receiver at 21. It's kinda, it would be a Howie Roseman move, make the splash, get somebody flashy, uh, somebody fast, because you got to surround Carson with speed. They've been trying to get somebody to take the top off the defense since Torrey Smith. Um, and Torrey wasn't a Hall of Famer, but Torrey Smith was a good player and a guy that could stretch the field and unlocks a lot of those talents that Carson has. If you just play pitch and catch with Carson and check down stuff, you're not going to see what makes him so potentially great. And, you know, Mike Wallace had injuries. Uh, he would have been the guy two years ago. Then Deshaun Jackson was the guy for a few games, got hurt. You can't count on older guys right now to stay healthy. You got to grab somebody young. I don't think they'd reach for Rager at 21, but I wouldn't be shocked if, uh, you know, Ruggs is not there. And Mel Kuyper says that the Eagles will grab Ruggs at 21. I could see that. People rave about Ruggs. He's a high-character guy, a tough guy, uh, all that. You know, Jefferson, very good player, good number two. He's climbed, all-around guy. It'd be good for the Eagles if he's taken at 15, I think, because – I think the Eagles need a rare speed guy, I, and I think that's what they'd want. Um, so as you look late in, the, late in the first round, another thing that stood out was Minnesota's got a couple back-to-back picks. Um, you know That's why they got rid of Diggs. You can grab a wide receiver in the draft. It's deep. 
you know, accumulating the picks. They could be a contender this year uh, again. And they have 12 in total in the draft. The only running back taken in the first round, according to Mel, Mel Kuyper, is going to be Swift from Georgia at 32, uh, Kansas City. They didn't have anybody consistently toting the rock all year. I think their, their, their leading rush was about 500 yards. I know it's not a necessity for them, but it sure couldn't hurt if that kid panned out. So I'll be really interested to see what happens Thursday. I'm excited about the draft. I think we'd all use the distraction, and uh, we'll dive into it more Wednesday, but that's kind of where my mind's at as I read this Mel Kuyper uh, mock draft. Um, y'all take care. Hope you enjoyed uh, the documentary, uh, Last Dance, last night. I know I did. I hope you enjoyed the Clyde interview, and uh, we'll talk about the draft this week.